Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Let's start with some baseball. Colorado Rockies 2, Chicago Cubs 1, October baseball undefeated. When it comes to baseball, October never fails. It always delivers. Last night, we got another beauty. 13 innings, the longest winner-take-all game in baseball history. This was that empty-the-cupboard kind of stuff. Do whatever you can, whenever you can, and worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. Colorado goes through six pitchers. Chicago used nine. October is back. Rocktober is back. Now, I've been saying this for a long time. The Rockies are tough as hell. There was nothing I saw from them last night that surprised me at all. They're tough as hell. And they proved it by going into Chicago and beating the Cubs in their own park. They went 11 straight innings without scoring last night, and they still found a way to grind out a win. Still found a way to knock the Cubs the hell out in their own house. This is a team that has been in three cities in three days, and they're still alive. Denver on Sunday, L.A. on Monday, Chicago on Tuesday. And my man, Buddy Black. Buddy Black managed that group to absolute perfection. Do you know how hard it is to pick up a team after losing the division on a Monday, getting on a plane, and then flying Tuesday halfway across the country and having them ready to go? But he did, because Bud Black is a genius. And his guys did, because they're tough as hell. And it all started with jungle legend and alleged good friend of Adam Hawk, Kyle Freeland. He pitched six and two-thirds of shutout ball. But then again, you knew he would. And if you didn't know, it's only because you have not been paying attention. This cat, he's got Cy Young stuff. He brought it last night. And it didn't matter that he was starting on three days rest for the first time and making his first postseason start. Colorado gets out quickly. They get on the board in the first with a walk, a ground rule double into the Ivy, a sack fly, one nothing rocks. And Freeland nearly made that one run hold up the entire way. But in the eighth, the Cubs scored to tie it. Now that's normally where your dream season implodes. It comes to an end. The home team, the team with the World Series pedigree, the team with the payroll, they tie it up in the eighth. They go on, they win it in the ninth, and then the visitors go home with a good job, good effort. Except not last night. Because the Rockies bully, the Rockies bullpen, which has had some shaky moments this season, just kept dealing. Four straight relievers held the Cubs hitless through the ninth, the tenth, the eleventh, the twelfth. Then, in the top of the thirteenth, with two outs, Trevor Story singles. And is that guy any good, by the way? Trevor Story. Gerardo Parra singles. Story goes to third. And then the legend, Tony Walters, off the bench, four hours, sitting there ice cold, picks up the bat and does this. The pitch. Base hit into center field by Tony Walters. Home comes Story. Parra to third. The Rockies have regained the lead. Two to one in the top of the 13th. Tony Walters. With the biggest hit of his career, the Rockies have the lead. Tony freaking Walters, if you need him. Tony freaking Walters, to be official about it, thanks to Rockies Radio. If you need him, you probably need a little background on this guy. You probably need some background on old T-dubs. Here it is, third string catcher, hitting a buck 70, 
one for 17 on changeups this season. He had not had a hit in weeks. And then this guy comes up on that stage, the biggest stage he'll ever be on, well, until now. And he comes through with the biggest hit of the season and of his life. Nolan Arenado said it best, quote, I was so happy for Tony. I wanted to cry. He has worked so hard all season, and I give him credit for being ready. That's not easy, end quote. That's not easy at all. This dude had been sitting on the bench again for four hours plus. He picked up the bat ice cold, but he was still ready for the biggest moment of his career. My man had one extra RBI in his career. Check that, extra inning RBI in his career before last night. Now he's got two. That's two for him. 2-1 Rockies. And Scott Oberg looked to close it out in the 13th. After Terrence Gore nearly got something started with a fake hit by pitch. And by the way, what was that guy doing up there? Nice managing, Joe. Way to run through your bench, Joe Madden. Anyway, he was up there getting key at bats, multiple at bats, when he's known for being a base running specialist. Then came Javi Baez. MVP candidate Javi Baez at the plate. Scott Oberg fires. Swing and a miss. He got him. Hey, Javi, way to shorten up with two strikes. I mean, don't they even say that in Little League all the time? Protect. Protect, Javi. Quick to the ball. Short to the ball. Shorten up your swing, Javi. Not Javi, man. He was coming out of his cleats. Looking to get back with one big swing. Didn't work. Then you add Albert Almora Jr. Oberg. Calmly looks in, gets his sign from Tony Walters. The 0-2 pitch, swing and a miss, he got him! Scott Oberg strikes out the side. The Rockies are moving on. 1-2-3, sit the hell down. Thanks for coming. Don't mind us, we're just going to rage for an hour or so in your house while you set up your tea times and we continue to play in the postseason. Look, I'm not going to make a prediction about that next series just yet, but I know this. I've said it before. I'll say it again right now. The Rockies are tough as hell. The Rockies are resilient as hell. Some of you Cubs fans didn't want to give them any credit whatsoever. Yeah, hey, Rome, they're not so bad. They're not so tough. It's just us. We didn't come through. You're right. You didn't. But they are tough. They're tough as hell. And they're a hell of a lot tougher than your team. And they proved it again. Roll on Rocktober. Quarterback Will Greer is my guest. Will, good morning. Great to have you on. How are you? I'm doing well, man. Thanks for having me on. It's great to have you on, Will. All right, so you beat Texas Tech in their place on Saturday in a game where the focus had been to get off to a good start. You could not have gotten off to a better one, passing for nearly 200 yards, and you had a 28-7 to lead in the first quarter. How were you able to get things rolling so quickly in that game? Yeah, we started fast, talked about it uh, all week, knew it was important, uh, came out and just just executed. We were making tough, contested catches. Uh, we were finishing blocks and and finishing drives and and getting in the end zone and that's you know we got got to figure out a way to play full game like that but got to got to play four quarters and uh, you know that was a great start but we got to figure out a way to uh, to execute it for an entire game. That's funny. Well, I was going to say knowing well listening to you and watching you, I would imagine that you would say that the second half didn't go as well. But before I could say it, you said it for me. Fact is though, you still win that game on the road against a tough team. What's it say about your team that you were able to find a way to win on the road against a very good Texas Tech team when things weren't clicking in the second half? Yeah, no doubt. Like you said, that was that was a good football team and. Uh, you know that that was a, that was a big win, and you know after the game we were kind of down as a team, and 
uh, at the end of the day, that that's our goal is to get a win, and we won. Uh, I think what it says about our team is that we are really talented. Uh, and once we figure out a way to kind of put things together and, and play a full game, um, you know, we're we're, we're going to be we're going to be really good. We 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 as a whole, uh, you know, played well in the first half. There were still things that we that we missed in the first half that we got to correct. But when you talk about what we did in the second half, it was uh, really just hurting ourselves, and that's that's stuff that's going to hurt us, you know, down the road. So uh, we've we've corrected it, and hopefully, mo- moving forward. Uh, we'll put ourselves in a better position to, to play a full game. We're talking West Virginia quarterback Will Greer. So when you left Florida, obviously you had a number of options. What was it about West Virginia and Dana Holgerson that made you feel like that was the right place for you? I, a lot of things, man. I, I love Dana. I think he's he's awesome. He's got a, a unique passion for this game. Um, you know, he's a, he's a great football coach and a great offensive mind. Uh, you know, really just an uh, innovative coach. Um, and I was really attracted to his style of coaching, his style of offense. It's a lot of fun to play in this offense. I have a lot of freedom. Um, you know, it's something that I really was attracted to when you talk West Virginia, but also just the, the, the program as a whole. Um, uh, this state, the passion for football here is awesome. Saturdays are awesome here, and it's, it's really an honor to play here. We're talking to Will Greer. Now, Will, as people know, you come from a rather famous family now. I know you never want to make it about you, but what's it like when you see your name coming up on Heisman lists and there's a lot of attention directed to you as a result of that? How are you approaching that? Uh, you know, I, I try to represent my, my family and, and, my, and my football family. When I say that, I'm, I'm saying that the, really the whole state of West Virginia and this program. I just try to be, uh, you know, represent them as well as I can. Um, you know, I don't, I don't look into that hype. As, uh, it's just not a focus of mine. My focus is on, is on winning games, always has been, um, and doing the best I can to lead this team. You know, I had your teammate David Sills on the show last year, and it was very clear from the numbers that the two of you put up that there is a strong connection there. How would you describe the chemistry that the two of you have on the field? Uh, yeah, we, I mean, we're very much on the same page, had a lot of reps together. He's, he's obviously a really talented guy, uh, but takes it to the next level. He, you know, he's uh, in the film room with me, uh, just, just asking how he can get better, asking about, you know, little things he can do to get open a little bit more. Uh, kind of understands what I'm looking at kind of from, from a quarterback perspective. Uh, so he, he takes it to the next level with what he does off the field, and, and then it shows when, uh, obviously, in his production on the field. Uh, we've built this relationship for a couple of years now on and off the field. Uh, really respect him as a person and as a player. West Virginia quarterback Will Greer, my guest. Will, you mentioned the film room. Coaches rave about your prep, the time you put in, especially in breaking down film. What are you looking for specifically in film sessions, and what have you taken away from them? Well, I, I, I've learned, you know, Jake Spavitol does such a good job of, of just coaching football. Um, you know, when we, when we sit in there and meet as, as much as we do, uh, I've, I've just learned so much about the game and about how to watch film, how to scheme, how to prepare uh, from him. So we, you know, we, and we've kind of gotten in a routine with it. And I've, I've just kind of learned, you know, kind of what he's looking for and, and how he's kind of, you know, you know, building the game plan. Uh, and, and we do it together. So by the time game time comes around, I'm very well prepared and uh, understand what the other team's doing, understand what we're trying to do, uh, run game and, and pass game and, um, you know, really just kind of learn from how, how an offensive coordinator, I guess, puts together a game plan. Um, and that's helped me just, just learning ball, learning how to prepare. Uh, and I'm in a really good spot with it. And he's done a, an outstanding job of kind of bringing me along and 
you know, having two years with him has been has been outstanding for my development. Heisman Trophy candidate Will Greer joining us for a few more moments. Of course, Will, you could have entered the draft last season, but you decided to come back. What was the decision-making process like for you, and then what brought you back to the Mountaineers? Yeah, well, part of it, like we were just talking about, is just the development I've been able to, uh, like with Spav and Dana, they just uh, have, have made me a better player and, and helped me to uh, learn football, and I've continued to develop a, a whole lot under those guys. Um, so that that was part of my decision was getting another year to uh, continue to to get better, um, you know, in the in the film room, but also on the field. Um, and then you know, plenty of other things. When you talk the the situation uh, with me coming back, a lot of guys uh, coming back um, that you know we had we thought we would have a good football team, obviously, and uh, you know there's a lot of guys that. Uh, you know, had had played last year, had experience that were a year older. Um, you know, we all kind of we thought we'd have a good team this year, and uh, a lot of excitement around the program. And I certainly don't mind playing here. I, I love the uh, the fans, like I said, and 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 this program. And and you know, I was I really excited to come back more than anything. I thought that. Uh, uh, it would be a great deal for me and for everybody else involved in this program. All right, Will, so you got your football family, and then you have your immediate family. You and your daughter, Ellie, have spent a lot of time watching Despicable Me. You've talked about how you're a huge fan of it. Break it down for me. What makes that show a must-watch? <laughs> the, yeah, well, I, all these kids' shows are, are impressive. I love them. I, we, we watch them all the time. Um, <laughs> Despicable Me is great. That's uh you know that's it's one of her favorites. There's there's three movies and she loves all three. The Minions are great. Uh, Steve Carell does an outstanding job as as Gru. Uh, big fan of Gru. Um, it's uh it's you gotta watch it. You know it's just uh it's a great kids show, but it's fun for the for the parents as well. I hear you. One last thing. You know you've got to balance this whole thing, right? You got to be the quarterback and the leader of a top ten team. You got to be a father. You have to be a Heisman Trophy candidate. I know that you're very much into mindfulness and meditation. How did you first get into it, and what do you get out of it? I, I get a lot out of it. I actually recommend it to everybody, uh, not just athletes or guys on this team, but I think it's a a great practice for for everybody to do just to. Uh, center yourself and, and practice focus. Uh, I, I got into it uh, really last year. There's a guy, you know, Mike Brummage uh, is his name. He was, uh, um, you know, he he was a, he's a war veteran. He he actually practices it with other war vets, and um, he's he's really interesting guy and, and really awesome guy. Um, but he he practiced with me last year uh, before games and stuff like that, and I was doing it about once a week and. Uh, you know, as as I continue to do it throughout the season, you know, during the off season, I uh, we talked and I got into doing it more. You know, two or three times a week, and you know, I'm, I'm at a place now where I do it, uh, you know, almost every day. Uh, just you know, 15, 20 minutes doesn't take long, but uh, like I said, helps center yourself and, and helps practice focus. There's a lot of benefits you can get out of it uh, without getting into it too much. I just recommend that, that people look into it, and uh, you know, he kind of headed that up for me, and and it's it's done a lot with. Um, you know, for me and, and football on and off the field. Uh, so it's something that, like I said, I recommend to everybody and uh, something that's your your own kind of journey. So. It, without getting into it, without keeping you too long, one last, just one quick follow. It's hard though, right? It's hard. The first time that I tried to sit, and I don't do it nearly enough, but the first time that I tried to sit and think about nothing and clear my brain even for one minute, it was really challenging. Is that it me is. or is it that hard? No, it, it is. It's, it's, it, it's a practice. It's something that you, that you kind of grow um, and you, you can do it for a little bit longer the next time. And, and, and as you practice and get good at it, it's, 
uh, you, you develop this this sense of uh, you know uh, peace, I guess, and and you can kind of clear your mind, and and it helps in in, uh, in a lot of areas of life. You know, it's a uh, it's something that that grows, and that you know over time, once once you do it. Uh, you, you get five, ten minutes, fifteen minutes, twenty minutes, and then it feels like nothing, and it just feels like second nature, and you kind of uh, reset yourself, and it gives you a sense of energy for the rest of the day. West Virginia four and zero and two and zero in conference play, and they are number eight in the coaches' poll. They're hosting Kansas on Saturday. Will Greer is their quarterback. Will, great to have you on the show. Great conversation. I appreciate you, and I appreciate your time, man. Thanks so I much. Appreciate you, man. Thanks for having me on. Chicago, not so much. Two games, two days. Two absolute daggers to the Cubs. The team that needed to fly the W just one more time to fight its way into the postseason bracket now gets to head to O'Hare and fly to whatever beach they want. Two and freaking barbecue. Not exactly what October Joe and Theo expected. A Cub fans? But this is what happens when you get run down by the Brew Crew in September. This is what happens when Colorado comes into your house looking to crash Rocktober. And while I do get that the postseason is the closest thing to bouncing a couple of dice up against the back wall and hoping for the best, that can't happen. That simply cannot happen. On back-to-back nights, the Cubs had two underdogs come into their house and put a fist right into their teeth. The team with the most home runs in the senior circuit. The team with the payroll that's pushing 240 mil. Just had the Brewers and the Rockies come into Wrigley, tarp the walls, and party their freaking faces off. Two runs. Two runs in 22 innings. That's all the offense that the Cubs can muster in must-win games against the Brewers and the Rockies. A big fly from Anthony Rizzo in game 163, an RBI double from Javi Baez in the wild card, and the team that scored the fourth most runs in the NL picked a hell of a time for their bats to no-show. That's 40 games this year where the Cubs offense has put up one run or less. The Orioles were the only other team to do that, and they lost 115 games. Cub honks. Cub Nation, I thought things were supposed to be different in Wrigleyville. I thought that World Series was just supposed to be the beginning. That the bully was built. That Dynasty was about to commence. That Theo built that roster for the long haul. That you had the prototype skipper. The perfect manager in Joe Madden. People were lining up to write think pieces about the leadership spilling out of that clubhouse. Not just for Major League Baseball, not just for sports, but for corporate America. Now the only thing that might be spilling out of that clubhouse is the dude with three Manager of the Year awards above the wine rack. I say that because Ken Rosenthal, very well-respected reporter for The Athletic, reports that the end might be near for Joe Madden. I mean, how's that taste? One second, this guy will never buy another meal in that town after leading them to their first championship in about 700 years. The next, management might be telling Madden to take his 10-speed and ride the hell out of Chicago. You know, like, hey, Joe, thanks. Now drop your key card with Sharon in HR. We'll mail you the rest of your crap. Look, I'm not saying they should fire this guy. Far from it. I'm not saying that Joe Madden's not a good manager. Although there are others I would take over him, but he is. But the fact that the Cubs 
reportedly or even thinking about running him tells you where things are right now in Wrigleyville, tells you how disappointed they are. And I get it. I understand it. They should be. A guy who managed his way out of the box or manages out of the box and earned a reputation for pushing all the right buttons sure smashed a couple of questionable ones last night. And now we're talking about whether or not he still has a gig. I mean, there was that decision to pull John Lester after only six innings when he settled in and he was cruising. There was that decision to pinch hit Jason Hayward when the Cubs had the rocks on the ropes in the seventh with the bases juiced. He kept Kyle Schwarber on the pines to go to a dude with a lifetime average of a buck 53 in the postseason. And Hayward did what guys who hit 153 do. He struck out. Madden ends up running out of bench players. He had to bat. Terrence Gore, a pinch-running specialist, twice in the late innings. In short, again, he got turned inside out by Bud Black. Bottom line, it's going to be a long offseason in the Windy City. Change is coming. And if it's not, it should be because you do not lose two must-win games at home to two teams that you should beat. You better do something, Theo. Because that roster that you built for the long haul and multiple rings just gassed out when you needed it most. But hey, how about them Bears? How about them Bears? Marcus Mariota is my guest. Marcus, good to have you back. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. It's good to have you, bud. All right, so you've been a part of some great wins in your time in Tennessee, but on Sunday, you're trailing 17-3 to to the defending world champs, and then you come back to win an overtime 26-23. What was it like in the locker room after that game, and how big of a win was that? It was, it was an incredible win, and I think it, it's those feelings that you have after a game like that, it, it's hard to beat. And um, to be able to, to enjoy that with the guys – uh, the amount of work and preparation that you put in week in and week out, it was a special moment. All right, so you led a 16-yard, 75, or 16-play, 75-yard drive in overtime. It included three fourth-down conversions. So what's it say about this team that against the defending Super Bowl champs again, you were able to come through time and time again mattered most? Yeah, resilient. I think these first few weeks we've, we've dealt with a, a lot, whether it was injuries, uh, whether it was, you know, playing a seven-hour game your first week. I mean, there was a lot of things that could have easily uh, turned the tables for us in this in this season. And uh, we found a way to kind of get the season going and start it off the right way and hopefully continue that this weekend. Titans quarterback Marcus Mariota, my guest. So that was your sixth game-winning drive. And your teammates talk about you as the comeback kid and the fact that when they're down, they know they always have a chance because you're their quarterback. Let me ask you, and I used to talk – to Joe Montana about this quite a bit. And I know that's a, that's a big name to throw around. But if you can consciously dial it up when it matters most, is that something that you can learn? Is that something you do? How do you play your best when the pressure is highest? You know, honestly, I'm not sure. I, I really just try to keep my, my mentality the same throughout the game. Try to continue just to take it one play at a time and, and focus on just being present. And from that moment on, I, I think really if you just take care of the football and, and find ways to execute what the coaches are calling, you'll find a way to win. Wait, or maybe there's another way to explain that. After the game, you were talking about the Aloha spirit. For those who do not know, what is the Aloha spirit, and how do you describe that? It's a way of life back home. Um, you know, I think growing up culturally, we talk about we more than I, and that Aloha spirit is what kind of carries us throughout wherever you may go, uh, whether you leave the islands or you stay there. And um, that that spirit, that that kind of that culture 
that you live with, I think it, it, um, it really just becomes a part of you. And, uh, I, I, from, since I was a kid, I, I learned much more about how I can help the people around me than, than really being selfish and, and trying to promote myself. And as long as I can continue to have that spirit and that mentality, I think, um, you know, hopefully I'll continue to represent Hawaii in, in the best way possible. You know, and in that sense, you and I talked during Super Bowl week about the rise of quarterbacks from Hawaii. Of course, there's Tua, but you and I, but I also had Milton McKenzie from UCF on the show earlier this year, and we talked about the pride of being a quarterback from Hawaii and everything that goes along with that. So how much pride do you take in how these young quarterbacks have followed in your footsteps and that they all look up to you as a role model? It, it means the world. It, it, honestly, it's, it's hard to put into words. Um, you know, McKenzie and both two, I, I've gotten to know. I've watched them grow up. I've, I've seen them play since they were little kids. And to see the success carry on into the next level um, is special. And really, honestly, they're the next generation. Um, there's a bunch of kids back home in Hawaii that are, that are watching them, watching how they're, they're, how they're being successful. And you know, I hope they continue just to represent that in, in the best way possible. And, and as they continue forward, I, I hope uh, we get the chance to play each other up at this level. Um, but you know what? As they continue to carry the torch, I, I'm just so proud of them. Titans are three and one. They're in first. Marcus, you are the last guy that I know who wants to make it about yourself. But your teammates talk about the fact that you've battled through pain this season to be out there to help them win. So, what's it mean to you to know how much they love and respect the way you lead this team and battle for this team and will play through certain things to be out there with them? Well, it's all about these guys, man. I, I mean, when it comes down to it, I just try to be the best teammate possible and just try to find ways to help these guys win. Uh, I see on a day-to-day basis how much these guys work, how much they sacrifice, and the least I can do is just put my best foot forward and hopefully give them a chance to win. All right, so if you're 3-1 and one and you've beaten the defending Super Bowl champs and you've beaten Jacksonville and you've won three straight this season and you went to the postseason last season, you know what it takes to get there and have success. How good can this team be? It, you know what? Honestly, it's just, it's got to be a, a focus on just today and you know not worrying about what happened in the past, focusing on our process, continuing to build off of what we've we've done up until this point. And if we continue to get better, I mean, we can we can achieve the goals that we have set up for for ourselves as a team. But until then, we just got to focus on being present and just trying to get better every single day. Marcus Mariota joins me for a couple of more moments. You know, I've had a number of your teammates on the show, and they've talked about what it's like to play for Mike Vrabel. What about you? How do you like him, and what's the experience been like for you so far? It's been awesome. It's it Truly, it's um, it's been such a great experience. I think the, the confidence that he has in us, um, some of the decisions he made on Sunday, whether it was allowing us to go for that fourth down instead of kicking the field goal, those give – those decisions gives us confidence, and um, it's a lot of fun to play for. And as we as we go forward, I, I think he continues to, to push us and, and try to put us in the best situations possible, and hopefully we can continue to execute and, and find ways to win. Right, so finally, you've put so much time into your game, and your growth as a player is really evident, and you can see it from back when you first entered into the league to where you are right now. In fact, how do you see yourself? How different are you as a player now than you were as a rookie yourself see? Well, I, I definitely learned from a lot of different experiences, um, you know, and I think all those lessons have, have really ultimately shaped me into the player that I am today. Uh, I would say, I, 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 would, I mean, honestly, you're, you're, I am dramatically different from when I, I walked into this, this league, and that's a result of how I've kind of learned from these experiences, how I've tried to gotten better or try to get better, and um with that being said, you know, at 10 years from now, five years from now, I'll, I'll be a different player then. I just got to continue to learn, 
continue to, to focus on this process and when it comes down to it, if I can get better every single day, hopefully that will that could, will continue to lead some, to some success. And I'll ask you about one last guy. You connected with Corey Davis nine times, 161 yards, including the game-winning TD in overtime. That was his first regular season touchdown as a pro. How happy were you for him to have that moment? In that? Oh, I was so excited, so excited. He, another guy that's gone through a lot, I think, through his rookie season, he battled through a bunch of injuries. And to, to have him come out and, and to really – to play well these these first few games and to get that touchdown was was huge. Now we just got to go find the ball. Um, so we'll we'll figure that all out. But um, again, it was such a great moment for him, and um, hopefully we can continue to have those. I know you're looking ahead to Sunday against Buffalo, but that was a great win, a truly a great team win. Marcus Mariota, my guest. Marcus, great to get caught up. We're always good to have you on the show. I always look forward to it. Thank you so much, man. Have a great week. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Have a good one. An entire hour on baseball except for Will Greer, and now more baseball. Yankees won 100 games this season. And for this season to be anything other than a disaster, they're going to need to win 101 because the evil empire also is not about stacking regular season doves. They're not about wild card appearances, and they sure as hell aren't about going one and done. But I've got bad news for you Yankee fans. The Oakland A's are coming into New York with very bad intentions. And a pile of house money spilling from their pockets and a roster of absolute savages. And let me be straight. I would not be surprised if we saw another road dog popping bottles tonight. The Yankees are giving the ball to Luis Severino. It's a move that looks perfectly logical on paper. 19 wins, an ERA of 339, 220 Ks in only 191 innings. But my man's an absolute coin flip when it comes to what you're going to get. When the guy's good, he's unhittable. When the guy's bad, he's a gas can. For two months this summer, he might have been the best starter on the planet. For two months, he might have been one of the worst. And a year after lasting only one-third of an inning, when he got the start in the very same wildcard game, the Yankees are putting the ball back in this dude's hands and hoping for the best. Now, last year, they did dig out of it. But last year, they were not facing the A's. This may feel like a crew that is just happy to be there, but do not get that twisted. I mean, that's not just a bad take. It's just the wrong take. They won 97 games. They won more road games than any team not named the Red Sox and the defending champs. And they're coming into the Bronx with a pitching staff full of killers. And they might all get the ball. Every last one of them might get the ball. They might be starting Liam Hendricks tonight. But by starting, I mean he's the start of a parade of relievers who plan on making the Bombers miserable. Hendricks has made eight starts since September, and they've all been less than two innings. Did you hear what I just said? This guy's made eight starts this September, and they've all been less than two innings. And the A's are walking into the evil empire with the plan of bullpenning the Yankees lineup to death. Not my take, but the take belonging to a very wise man, a very smart man, my man Eric Burns. He and I talked about this very topic on Ep52 of the Jim Rome podcast last week, and he says that is a no-brainer. That is the only way for the A's to play that against the Yankees. If you're not 
bullpenning these days? Like, what are you doing, right? Unless you're running out a horse, and I'm talking a horse, like a one-two guy. I'm, I'm having, I'll have a quick trigger on any guy that's not a one. Actually, once I get into the postseason, and during during the season, if I were if I were to run a team, I don't even think a fourth or fifth starter would exist. It's just it, the the way the game is is changing. Um, I think it's cool, and, and you know, people are going to argue, hey, it's not good for baseball. We need starters. Yeah. Yeah, you're going to have your starters. You're going to have your superstars. You know, after that, like, who, whoever bought a ticket to go see a four or five. This guy's so good. Eric Burns was awesome. That was the Jim Rohn podcast. You should go back and listen to that. But he just said, unless I've got a bona fide one or a bona fide two, this is the way I'm doing it. I'm not running a four out there. I'm not running a five out there. Who's paying to see a four or a five? Now, if you look at the numbers, the A's are onto something. The Yankees only went 19-16 and 16 this season when they faced six or more opposing pitchers. And with the A's traveling to New York with 11 pitchers and maybe that one true starter, Edwin Jackson, they're going to see at least six tonight. You know that. So in the one dugout, you've got Aaron Boone hoping he gets his starter deep into the game. In the other, you've got Bob Melvin. And what's Bob Melvin looking for? Five outs, maybe? And after crashing October with a roster full of no-names, the A's are headed into Yankee Stadium looking to swing a wrecking ball. I'm telling you, sleep on these guys. You will get knocked the hell out. And it would not surprise me at all if it happened. Look for them to bullpen the hell out of it. I love that game. Another great matchup. And those two guys, teams, I should say, could not go about it any more differently than they do. Who do you have tonight? Call your shot right now. Tom Haberstroh is my guest. Tom, good morning. Nice to have you back. How are you? I'm doing great, Jim. How are you? Tom, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Now, you have an awesome piece up right now that I want to jump right into about NBA players and social media with the headline being, is social media addiction in the NBA out of control? Let me first ask you this. When did you first start thinking about that piece and what was the inspiration behind it? Yeah, Jim, uh, when you're a reporter in the NBA, you walk into a locker room um, 10 years ago. And the first locker room I walked into is kind of an an anomaly, the Miami Heat, 2010. But there weren't any cell phones in the locker room. Um, The guys were talking. They were laughing. uh, They were studying, you know, the scouting report with an actual piece of paper, um, you know, tying their shoes or stretching, what have you. Um, There weren't any cell phones. And now if you walk into a locker room, oftentimes you're met by 12 men just staring at their phones. Um, and it's just a huge difference. And, you know, a couple of years ago, I just started noticing uh, when you go and talk to a player, you have to, you know, ask them, hey, I know you're on your phone right now, but you mind <laughs> if I ask you a couple questions? And wow. you feel rude, right? Um, and so I decided to talk to um, specialists, people who work in this space to see, you know, is this good for performance? You know, if you're, if you're uh, on your uh, Twitter feed or Instagram late at night, what does that do to your production the very next day? And there's actually a study out there right now in the sleep journal that says late night tweeting by NBA players saw a significant decline in their production the very next day, um, uh, over a point per game loss if you're tweeting late at night. So this started, like my wheels turning is, wait, is this, is this, something we start to think about as like a drug is, is this something like uh, cell phones and social media? Um, is this going to have a negative impact on performance in a way that we don't really see? 
That is fascinating. That is one of the best starts to an interview in quite some time. So why don't you answer that question? Is it a drug? Like when we say that it's an addiction, is it just a, a phrase or is it an actual addiction and a drug? Well, J.J. Redick, uh, he's 34 years old, one of the best shooters in the history of basketball. He's also um, a podcast host at The Ringer with Bill Simmons, and he decided this summer to just get rid of Twitter, get rid of Instagram, which is such a, a, a bizarre move for someone who's in the media. Like, he has a podcast that he needs to promote um, on a very social media-friendly site at The Ringer, and yet he just killed all of it. He just got rid of it, erased his Twitter, erased his Instagram because he felt like he was addicted to the information FOMO, the fear of missing out that social media hacks into your brain is, you know, when you're driving and your, your phone goes off, it buzzes, you have the instinct to just pick it up and look at it. Or when you're at a stoplight or maybe not at a stoplight and you see that your phone is buzzing or not buzzing at all, you're going to go flip through your Twitter or your Instagram. And he has two young sons that he felt like, you know, he wanted to set an example for them that when you're around someone and you're, you know, having the, the, an interaction with them, have the respect, the decency to give them your full attention. Don't be staring at your phone. And he just kind of felt like Instagram, the comment field, the, the Twitter discussion was full of tribalism and just dark, just everyone yelling at each other. And he felt like it was addicting. Um, and I talked to Dr. William Parham, the mental uh, health uh, director at the NBPA, the Players Union for the NBA, and he said it is addicting and that it's something that they're looking at, the, the Players Union, as a matter of mental health is this idea that we're trying to keep up with all these images of ourselves and reflections of ourselves for the various different platforms rather than focusing on just human interaction more than just looking at your phone. Isn't it amazing, Tom? Like, we have this conversation in my home all the time about my two sons. I've got, and I'm sure a lot of people are listening to this, and they're nodding their heads, and they're thinking, I know this. We have the same conversation. I've got a 17-year-old son. I've got a 13-year-old son. And we talk about these very topics. But what about professional athletes? As an example, how worried are some players about the impact of social media on their mental and physical health? And then how concerned are the teams about their players using social media the way they do? Well, I'll tell you this. Um, the Philadelphia 76ers, when they go out for team meals, sometimes they have what's called a phone bucket, Jim. Right. It's step up to the dinner table and put your phone in this bucket or in this bag and let's all have adult human conversations. And that's, you know, that's not just the 76ers. I talked to multiple NBA teams who have tried this very thing, a phone bag or a phone bucket to try to promote just regular conversation, human interaction, and just put the phone down. Uh, Steve Magnus, who is a uh, performance coach uh, for runners, and he wrote the, the book The Science of Running uh, and Peak Performance, he's a, a specialist in this area, um, and he said, you know, what we used to have happen naturally, now we have to engineer. Like, after his running practices, he has to build in time for his athletes to talk to each other at the locker or – you know, on the playing field, because now as soon as practice is over, they go straight to their phones and they don't let their bodies and their hormones ramp down and get that kind of good vibes that you get with teammates normally. And when we played sports, that was kind of how we, we ramped down is we just talked to, talk to each other on the playing field or stretched or what have you. And now coaches are having to engineer this, um, this interaction. And one coach is now talking to an artificial intelligence startup in Venice Beach, California, outside of Los Angeles, 
a company that actually is trying to hack the phone to turn your bad habits into good ones. It's all so fascinating because the NBA, Jim, the NBA is by far the most social media friendly sport. You talk about LeBron James has more followers on Instagram than the top 10 NFL athletes combined. His audience is bigger than Tom Brady, Cam Newton, Odell Beckham Jr., all those guys combined. And it's just the question of how much is too much. Tom Haverstro joining us. You know, I had CJ McCollum, Tom. He's going to be on a podcast I taped yesterday. And I asked him about that because NBA Twitter is incredible. NBA social is incredible. And what you just said, I want to reiterate that. LeBron has more Instagram followers than Odell Beckham, Tom Brady, Cam Newton, Russell Wilson, J.J. Watt, Gronk, Antonio Brown, five other NFL superstars combined. How do you explain that and what does that mean for the NBA? Well, I think the NBA, it's a business model that has been so effective. I mean, I, I love watching NBA with, with Twitter open. Um, when I'm at an NBA game, I find my eyes looking at my Twitter more than the actual basketball. And that's sickening. That's, right. so, that that's crazy? so hard to turn away. And, and it's an admission that, um, you know, I think a lot of analysts and a lot of writers, a lot of reporters and fans um, would admit to is that sometimes the Twitter is more fun than the actual game. <laughs> Um, but I also, I also think, Jim, this speaks to something else. The NBA is the most authentic league in the sense that there are no helmets. There are no jerseys uh, wrapping around your arms and your legs. There, you can see Kevin Durant. You can see, see Steph Curry in the flesh. And I think that kind of promotes um, this kind of authenticity that you get on Instagram, that you feel like you know these guys because you see their emotions on every play on an NBA court, whereas Tom Brady, he's got a mask on. You can hardly see his face, and he's playing on the bench for half the game. So I think the NBA, just in general, has a lot more transparency with superstars and stars in general than any other sport. Another stat for you, 33 NBA players have at least 2 million followers on Instagram. In the NFL, that number is nine. Mm. Just nine players in the NFL have 2 million followers on Instagram. The NBA has 33. So it just speaks to that. The NBA is the Instagram, the, is the Twitter uh, league of all the sports in America. And it's something they have to grapple with. Mr. Tom, we're talking about how the NBA embraces this. They're good at it. They capitalize on it. But we did start the conversation by talking about their concerns, the team's concerns, the players' concerns. So if you're the NBA, how does the league balance the importance of social media to its brand and the growth of the game while at the same time being aware of the impact that it's having on the players and the teams? Yeah, so I think it's, uh, you know, the NBA has partnered with Headspace, the meditation app, um, and has delivered that, that app for all of its players and all of its employees in the league office and with teams um, to try to just ramp down and have some introspection and try to just, uh, you know, have, be in touch with yourself and have those mental health benefits that come uh, with, with meditating. And I think uh, Dr. Parham, who is the, the, the director of mental health with the, with the players' union, you know, he just, he wants to instill the importance of being it by yourself and just blocking out the noise and being true to yourself and listen to yourself and take those eight minutes a day um, just to just to spend thinking and ramping down and trying to blocking out the noise. And I think that's going to be a greater emphasis, uh, just the mental health aspect is to try to just wean yourself off of it and be aware that some of these apps are meant to just keep you scrolling, mindlessly scrolling, that persuasive technology is a term in Silicon Valley, persuasive technology to keep you hooked into there, whether it's notifications 
or a like or a comment. Um, you know, seeing, hey, all my friends like this photo, so I got to like this photo. Like all these things are designed to hook your brain into the app. And I think just the awareness that J.J. Redick has and, and some other players have that this is kind of, you know, not necessarily good for your mental health. Look, Jim, a lot of NBA players get off social media during the playoffs. It's a tacit admission that this stuff is bad for their performance and they need to get off these apps to focus. So I think a lot of players are becoming more aware of it. Um, and just like drinking alcohol or speeding on the highway, I think a lot of it is just moderation, just knowing when it's too dangerous, when it's not good for you, and trying not to go too deep into this stuff. Drink not to elevation, eat not to dullness. Also, it sounds like there is some technology to help us deal with technology. So, Tom, on a lighter note, and again, like anything else, there's some really good things here and some things that are pretty troubling. On a lighter note, NBA Twitter can be awesome. When it's good, it's amazing, like any part of Twitter. In your mind, what is the greatest moment in NBA Twitter history and why? Oh, man, it's got to be 2015, DeAndre Jordan, the barric- the free agency barricade. With J.J. Redick himself was a big player in that. Um, I remember where I was when I was, I was at my parents' house on the couch and just I, I, was, I was hooked. I could not stop uh, refreshing my Twitter feed. Um, it was incredible. Uh, just the idea of DeAndre Jordan was being locked in his house by Blake Griffin and Chris Paul to try to barricade him from the from the Dallas Mavericks and Mark Cuban in that free agency hunt. It was incredible theater. It is exactly what makes the NBA so alluring. Star players, the the camaraderie, the chemistry, and just the soap opera. It was it was awesome. And and to think that one of the people inside DeAndre Jordan's house playing along, tweeting all those emojis was JJ Redick himself. And and he's decided, you know what? I'm not I'm not game for this anymore. I need to get rid of this. And at, at the end of the story, uh, I quoted him by saying, it's the greatest thing ever. So maybe it's not for everybody. Maybe getting off Twitter is not the right move for someone who's 23 and trying to build their business, trying to build their brand, or just trying to have fun with the NBA. But at a certain point, some players just decide it's not worth it anymore. And J.J. Redick is one of them, even though he took part in the most awesome NBA Twitter moment, the peak NBA Twitter, when DeAndre Jordan was barricaded into his own house. It, it is a tremendous thing to read, and what a great conversation. Tom, before you go, there's no way I'd let you go and not have you on this show and ask you about the ALS Pepper Challenge and the movement that you have started. First off, how is your mother doing, and how can people support the fight for ALS research? Uh, Jim, that, that means a lot. Um, it's not every day I get to do a, a, a radio spot and the, and the host asks about my mother, but she is doing so well Thank you for asking. Um, she just got a really good report back on her movement um, with the doctors, and she is just she just loves the family time that we've had this summer um, and this fall. So I'm going to be seeing her real soon, um, and I'll, I'll let let her know that you uh, you asked for her regards and, and that ALS Pepper Challenge. If you'd like to donate, als.net/pepper uh, to donate to uh, to benefit ALS research because we need it. Uh, ALS, there is no cure. It is not an incurable disease. It is just underfunded. So thanks so much for uh, for bringing that up, Jim. Now, Tom, you got it. And semi regards. And it's always nice to have you on the show. We could talk about hey, whatever you're game to talk about. I'm game to talk about. But I definitely want to know about that. And the piece is a great piece to read. And I really appreciate that conversation, Tom. Enjoy your time with your family. It's so important. And really nice to have you back on, Tom. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jim. Anytime. Brad in Corona. Brad, what's going on? 
Jimbo, how are you, bud? I'm good, Brad. I, I don't know why you're calling, but I'm pumped that you are. What's up? How you feeling? Well, let me let me clarify. I call all the time. It's that the dude you're paying 12 bucks an hour to pick up the 800-636-8686 line won't pick it up anymore. So uh, I'm actually calling to celebrate Adam Hawk's two-year anniversary. Two years, which is one and a half years longer than the six-month over-under that the odds makers who knew Hawk gave him to last as your producer. I am getting kind of concerned, though, Jim, and uh, I want to give Hawk some fatherly advice because I feel like he's not necessarily getting the guidance he needs from you, and that's not your fault. You're focused on the show. You see him every day, so you can't be objective about this the way that I can. So uh, I got this one for you, Jim. Hawk, listen up. Son, you are one tattoo and a couple of stretched earlobe rings away from executive producing people's drink orders at a Starbucks. Say this out loud, Hawk. See how it sounds to you. I have a grande iced Americano for Jim. Grande iced Americano, Jim. Is that the life you want, Adam? Because that's where this thing seems like it's headed. Your, your body's supposed to be a temple, dude. You're treating yours like a refrigerator where five-year-olds can hang up their crappy artwork they came up with in school that week. By the way, dude, I hate to burst your bubble on such a special day, but Kyle Freeland has no idea who you are, and the Rockies have three games left in their season. You are looking better than usual, though, Hawk, losing all that weight on the keto diet. The keto diet is pretty much the dietary equivalent of a CrossFit workout. And much like what would happen if you went to an actual CrossFit workout, Hawk, I'm hoping your heart's just going to explode at the end of this thing. I'm no scientist, but uh, jamming a bunch of bacon and broccoli down your pie hole until your pee smells really funny isn't exactly the smartest diet I've ever heard of. Romy, get Keith Arnold on the mic and have him tell us about Hawk's new body odor and what it's been like sitting behind him and inhaling his keto breath for the past two months. Keith didn't move into Austin's old spot because it was vacant, Jim. He moved to avoid all those asparagus farts Hawk's been letting go during the show now. Did you see Keith biting his lip during that intro segment earlier? That's the face of a man trying to deal with sitting extremely close to a really stinky human being. By the way, Hawk, there is no bigger a-hole maneuver in the history of the universe than going on a diet and losing a bunch of weight right after you knock up your wife and she's involuntarily gaining a bunch of it. Honey, I know you're now wearing those spandex jeans with the uh, spandex staple to the top that you have to pull up over your giant pregnant gut, but check it out. I have D-lines now. Isn't this amazing? But listen, the real reason I called, Jim, is... Uh, Remember when Hawk went with that clone from San Diego and filmed himself getting tattooed with that guy? I do. Yeah, I'm going to give you that same opportunity, but uh, instead of Hawk and some lame, it's going to be Alvin, Deloro, and me. And instead of a bad tattoo, Alvin and I will be getting our junk sawed into and our sperm tubes welded shut by a highly qualified <laughs> urologist. I'd invite Hawk, Jim, because he needs one, but he'd probably try to bring his tattoo artist or body piercer in there and... You can imagine where it would go from there, Jim. Anyways, Alvy, you are on the clock. You've put this one off for too long, my friend. I'm getting it done on the 12th. If you want to jump in and get this brosectomy done together, hit me up, brah. Well, long live the champ, the B-I-C, a brosectomy, Alvy. He's got a very good point. Boy, Hawk, happy freaking anniversary to you. He just eviscerated you. Good night now!